We're happy to have this episode sponsored by Real Mushrooms. You probably already know about some of the great benefits of adding mushrooms to your diet, like better sleep, greater mental clarity, and a stronger immune system, but not all mushroom products are equal. Real Mushrooms is the real deal. Many mushroom companies harvest the mushroom and the grain it's growing on. Real Mushrooms products contain no grains or starch fillers. They're organic, cultivated naturally, and third-party verified for beta-glucans, the compound that makes them so valuable as a supplement. They even have a science and medical team of doctors who ensure that Real Mushrooms meets the highest standards. What I personally love is how informative their website is. Have questions about what mushroom is right for you? They have a robust blog with articles ranging from women's health to what mushrooms are most beneficial to your pet. Want to boost your immune system? Have better sleep and feel more calm? Grab the link in the show notes and get 25% off of your first order. Curiously enough, acupuncture is not just sticking needles into people. It is part of a coherent and observation-based medicine that practitioners of the art have handed down over the centuries. Join your host and guide, Michael Max, and explore how you can apply the principles of this ancient medicine in your everyday life. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Everyday Acupuncture. Today is a little bit of a different show. First of all, it's the one-year anniversary of Everyday Acupuncture. So those of you that have been with me for this past year listening, big thank you, much gratitude. Hope that you found it to be a helpful show and interesting. I've had some requests to do a solo show. And so as a way of celebrating this one-year anniversary of Everyday Acupuncture podcast, today you've just got me. We're going to see how this goes. I generally am not one to sit down and do a monologue, so it's a bit of an experiment. I think I do better in dialogue than I do in monologue. My work in my clinic is always about dialogue and about connection and communication. So just to sit here uh, and sit down with you and just talk all by myself, well, how do I say this? It feels a little bit weird, but I'm always up for an experiment, and because I've had some requests to do this, that's what we're doing today. So in this show, I'm going to cover a couple of different things. First of all, I'm going to cover some questions that I've received from listeners, uh, talk about some habits and practices for health in Chinese medicine. We call that yangsheng, uh, nourishing life is literally how that translates. And there's a number of practices that I talk about with folks in my clinic on a regular basis that I think are really helpful for everyday health. And then I've also had a request from one of the listeners to talk a bit about what it takes to become an acupuncturist. If you wanted to go to school, if you wanted to enter this sort of a profession, what are some of the things to think about and consider? So that's what we're going to do today. All right, let's start with some of the common questions. Now, one of the big ones that, that I get in my practice, and I think all acupuncturists get, it's the very common question of how does acupuncture work? And really, from my point of view, there is no real satisfying answer to this one, at least not a satisfying answer to the Western mind. Now, if you study Chinese medicine, which is based in Chinese philosophy and Chinese thought, 
the ways that they think about acupuncture there, it makes a lot of sense. But when we're talking to Westerners, when we're thinking with our Western minds, it really doesn't make much sense. So I still want to tackle this and see where this might go in terms of an explanation. First of all, I want to refer you to the podcast show that I did, uh, number 39, with Dan Keown. He's a Western doc who's also an acupuncturist, and he's done some really interesting work with looking at embryology, Western embryology, and Chinese medicine physiology. And it's amazing the connections that he's found between the two. One of the things that he talks about in his book, and you can hear it in the podcast too, he talks about how in embryological development, there are various organ systems that are all connected because they come out of the same uh, substrate layer. There's basically, as, as we are forming as embryos, we start off as one cell, and that one cell divides into, well, eventually into us. But at a certain point, there's basically a layer of three different kinds of cells, and out of those three different kinds of cells, everything else differentiates, heart and lungs and nervous system, bones, all that stuff. And the way that Chinese medicine has looked at physiology in many ways connects up with how things arise out of certain, they call them germ layers, in the embryological world. And so one way of thinking about how acupuncture works is that we are actually contacting a system that we're built on. So while after being born into this world, we look at separate organ systems and we look at joints and muscles and, and nervous systems and things like that, there are actually ways that all of these are unified together. And Chinese medicine looks at that stuff. And through the use of needles, it's possible to contact this more ancient part of us that everything else is based on. So one of the ways that I think about how acupuncture works is it's literally connecting up with our blueprint of not just how we're created, but how we maintain our lives and, and how we heal ourselves. You know, we're built to be these incredible self-regulating, self-repairing organisms. And so in some ways, acupuncture can really tap into that original blueprint. That's, that's one way to think about it. Another way that I like to think about how acupuncture works, and this is, this is based on my clinical experience. This is watching uh, what happens with people when they receive acupuncture and what happens afterwards. For many, many people, acupuncture brings a very deep state of rest and quietude. And it can help take our nervous system out of its fight or flight response and into what's called a parasympathetic state, which is the state of, of rest and repose. And it's only in that state of rest, only when we're in a parasympathetic state, that our body is able to restore and repair itself. When we're in fight and flight, or sometimes called sympathetic mode, the body is too busy thinking about survival. And so it just doesn't have the resources or wherewithal to think about rest and repair. So one of the things that acupuncture does is it drops you into that very deep pool of quietude. 
And from there, the body naturally knows what to do to repair itself. Uh, You've probably heard the name Hippocrates. He's considered the father of Western medicine. He's the guy who said, uh, first, do no harm. He also has a fabulous quote that goes, natural forces within us are the true healers of disease. And when I think about what acupuncture does, it helps to activate those natural forces inside of us. And that's basically why it works. All right, next question. If you've ever been to an acupuncturist, you'll know that we look at people's tongues. Why do we do that? The reason that we look at people's tongues is because the tongue is kind of a barometer of what's going on with the entire organism. So what we're looking for when we're looking at a tongue is, first of all, we're looking at the color. Is it pink? Is it red? Is it pale? Is it purple? We're looking at the shape of the tongue. Sometimes tongues are very thin, and even they look kind of hard. People stick them out, and they look really stiff. Other people have these big, puffy, flabby tongues, and uh, sometimes with teeth marks in them. These give us an indication of a person's water metabolism, whether it's puffy or not puffy. And then we look at the coating of the tongue. Now, the coating, sometimes you don't see much of a coating, or it could be a thin white coating, which we consider to be the natural and healthy coat. You might even want to just take yourself over to a mirror right now and and flap your tongue out and take a look as we talk about this. Other kinds of coatings that you would see on the tongue is a thick white coating or sometimes a thick yellow coating. Now, both of these point to issues with the digestive system. In one case, you would have more issues with fluid metabolism. That would be the white coating. And if you've got that thicker yellow coating, you're, you're looking at inflammation or what we call heat. As I mentioned, we look at the color of the tongue. Generally speaking, a natural pink color is considered healthy. That would be what we call a normal tongue. If the tongue tends toward the pale side, that usually means there's some sort of issues with the quality of the blood. Maybe not quite anemia from a Western point of view, but moving in that direction. It's basically telling us that the nutritive aspect of the fluids in that person is a bit weak and it needs some supplementation. Those people that have a more purple or purple-red tongue, these are folks that have some sort of cardiovascular issues. And if the tongue is a bit stiff, furthermore, that there's probably some issues with with the cardiovascular system and with the uh, blood flow. Those people who have tongues that deviate to one side or the other or uh, the tongue, you can't hold it still. It kind of wiggles or moves around. These are indications that there's some sort of a neurological issue. So again, we look at the tongue. It's not the only diagnostic we use. We also listen to pulses. Some of us check people's abdomens. Uh, of, Of course, we want to look at the entire symptomatic picture of what someone brings in to know how best to treat them. But as an overall indication, the tongue really is hard to beat. All right. Now, here's a question that us acupuncturists get on a regular basis that a conventional Western doctor probably never hears. And the question is this, do I have to believe in this for it to work? In other words, do I have to believe in acupuncture for acupuncture to work? The answer is no, you don't. Acupuncture is not at all a matter of belief. It's a matter of inquiry. 
Acupuncture is basically a technology like there's any other technology. You don't need to believe in a technology for it to work, right? You don't have to get in your car and believe that you turn the key and it's going to turn on you. You get in a car, and if a car is working well, you put in the correct key, you turn it, your, your car turns on. So I see acupuncture as being more of a technology. The, a better question to ask an acupuncturist isn't, do I need to believe in acupuncture for it to work? But do you as an acupuncturist have experience treating the kinds of issues that I'm coming in with? That's, that's going to that's gonna be a more useful question. Why is it that you don't have to believe in acupuncture for it to work? Again, it's, it's a technology, it's a set of skills, and while generally speaking, I would say it is helpful to bring an open and inquiring mind to an acupuncture visit. Well, you know, when you think about it, it's probably best to bring an open and an inquiring mind to pretty much anything that you do. Many people are skeptical of acupuncture, and I think those of us in the West that haven't grown up with it, you know, we didn't have grandmas or uncles or aunts that were practitioners. You know, as kids, our moms were not feeding us Chinese herbs. So for us, it seems really strange and it seems really out of the box. And so we, we wonder if we can trust it. Really, I, I think when the question comes up, do I need to believe in it? The question really is, is this stuff actually real and trustworthy? Can this stuff actually help me? And really the best way to find out if it's going to help you is to go try it, right? You want to bring, you definitely want to bring your skeptical self to a treatment, but you also want to bring an open mind to the treatment. And when it comes to, and I'm going to put this in air quotes, trying acupuncture, you really want to leave the magical thinking behind. A lot of people think that acupuncture is magic, and that really just stems out of the fact that most of us don't understand what it is or how it works. You know, when you think about it, a lot of conventional medicine treatments, we don't really understand what they're doing with that either. And, and yet we don't think it's magic. We just go to the doctor, have them do what they're trained and skilled in doing, and, and ideally we get better. If you're considering using acupuncture, I strongly advise you not to think of it as a one-and-done sort of intervention. Yes, there are people where they get one or two treatments, they have results that seem miraculous, and their problem is is 80% solved. Those kinds of things do happen. But it's much more common that it's going to take a course of treatment over time before you're going to get your problem resolved or changed. Important thing to consider here when it comes to how many treatments it's going to take is whether the issue is acute, is it is it new, have you had it for a month or two, or is it long-term and chronic? Issues that are more acute resolve more quickly. Issues that are chronic can take a long time, and in fact, they may never completely resolve, but you may get to a place where you're far more comfortable with whatever it is that you're dealing with. Seriously, if you want to give acupuncture a fair trial and see if it's going to be helpful for you, you need to give it at least four to six treatments. And again, if it's chronic, you probably need to give it more like a dozen treatments. Now, this doesn't mean that you're going to get these treatments and then bang, suddenly things are going to change. Generally speaking, people will begin to get better and then they'll get a little more better and, and on and on. It tends to be a, a iterative and accumulative process. So if you've got questions about if 
if acupuncture is going to help you. Again, talk to an acupuncturist. Ask them if they've got experience treating what it is that you'd like to get treated and, and what their experience is with treating it in terms of how long it usually takes. And in fairness to both yourself and to the acupuncturist that you're seeing, give it a fair trial by giving it at least, like I said, four to six treatments, maybe more, depending on the condition. Okay, a couple more things about acupuncture and belief here. Uh, first of all, I really encourage for you as a patient to pay attention to your own experience. Pay attention to what's happening in your body, what's happening with your digestion, your mind, your sleep. One of the things that I've noticed over the years is that as people start getting better, they often forget that they ever had a problem. So it, it used to really drive me crazy when I first started practicing because people would come back after I gave them a treatment. And, and I always like to start off with an open-ended question like, how are you doing or how's the week been? And sometimes I would get these answers. Well, I, in fact, I still get these answers. And it'll be something to the effect of, well, maybe a little better. And what I've come to discover is that mm, maybe a little better means one of two things. It either means nothing at all has changed and I'm trying to be a nice patient. Or it means everything has completely changed and I've already forgotten that I had a problem. Now, it may seem strange to you as a listener, how could a person forget that they had a problem? And I find that it's unusual too, but I've seen it enough in my experience. And here's how I've discovered that people had a problem and it went away and they didn't even notice it. I usually take pretty good notes as to the problems and the issues that a person comes in with. And so when they say, well, you know, maybe I'm a bit better, or maybe it's about the same, I'll go through and ask. And so I'll, I'll, I'll ask things like, okay, so you're still waking up at night three times a night to urinate. And sometimes the answers will come back and they'll be, well, actually, no, I haven't done that. Or perhaps someone's had some issues with their digestion. They get reflux every day after dinner. And when I ask them about how things are going, they go, yeah, you know, about the same. And I go, oh, so you still have reflux every night. And, and sometimes people will stop and they'll think and they'll go, well, you know, actually, I think maybe I had it twice in the past week. It's a, it's a curiosity. And why it is that we forget the problems that we've been having, in fact, the problems that, that, that took us to the doctor in the first place, I don't know why our mind works that way, but I know that it does. And so... I really encourage you that if you're going to give acupuncture a try and see if it's going to help you, make a pretty detailed list of what it is that's bothering you before you go in because you're going to want to refer back to that a couple of weeks again after you've, you've had a treatment or a num ideally a number of treatments and see how you're doing. You can't really rely on your mind or your own experience to tell you how you're doing sometimes because, you know, let's face it. If you've got a rock in your shoe, you notice it with every step that you take. But once that rock is out of your shoe, you're probably not thinking, hey, it feels good that I don't have a rock in my shoe. You're not doing that. You're just walking along all happily, right? I think it's the same thing with treatment. So again, really important, make sure that you know what your baseline is so that you'll be able to really make a good assessment of how the treatment is helping you. One other thing about acupuncture treatment, and this is true for a lot of people, you'll go in with one issue. Maybe you've got 
uh, I don't know, respiratory issues, right? Asthma or bronchitis, something like that. And, and you begin to get treated. And it's really common because acupuncture is not just a specific treatment for one organ system. It actually treats the entire body. Everything's connected to everything. And acupuncture really can harmonize the entire physiological system, right? So you may go in for one problem, but you'll notice that other things begin to change. So maybe you, you are going in because of respiratory issues, but you might find that your digestion is actually getting better. Maybe your bowels were not working quite as well as you thought they were, and all of a sudden you notice that you've got these really great, easy daily bowel movements that maybe you haven't had for years. Or maybe you'll notice that your sleep is better. A lot of my patients comment either on how their sleep has improved or how their emotions have settled down. They often feel calmer, they feel less anxious, And they didn't even come in to be treated for those sorts of things. But because when the body begins to inhabit a greater state of health, greater state of coherency, anything else that's not quite right with you will start to change and fall into a deeper state of health. All right, on to the next subject here. A lot of my patients are surprised that when they first come in, I don't know what I'm going to do with them. The reason for this is I don't know who they are yet. Now, in our conventional Western medicine, we're very used to protocols, we're used to these studies, we're used to standards of care that say when a person has X disease, you give Y treatment. But Chinese medicine works differently. Chinese medicine is very much individualized medicine. And so it's possible to have two people come in that have the same problem. Let's say uh, two women come in and they both have irregular periods. Those two women will most likely get very different kinds of treatment because even though the symptomology that they come in with is the same, and the quote, I'm gonna put this in air quotes, the problem they come in with is the same, they are two different people. And the issues that they're having often stem from different ideologies. Again, going back to Hippocrates, he said, it's more important to know what sort of person has a disease than to know what sort of a disease a person has. And this is really true with Chinese medicine. You know, I I find it kind of curious. Here in the West, where we are so incredibly individualistic. For some reason, we've come up with a medicine that attempts to treat the masses. One size fits all. And yet, we look at Asian medicine, and often we think of Asian cultures as being much more, uh, they're, they're more alike than different. And in fact, individuality is a bit frowned upon. And yet, Chinese medicine, is an extremely individual medicine. The idea that that one person could be exactly like another person and be treated exactly the same is a very foreign thought for anyone practicing Chinese medicine. And that's why the treatment that you get from your acupuncturist might be very different from the treatment that a friend who has a very similar problem gets from their acupuncturist. And in fact, I find that from visit to visit to visit, Patients are always a little bit different, and so it's very rare that I would even do the same treatment every time that I see someone because things are always changing 
The important thing is to really get a handle on where somebody is right now and what it is that they need right now. It's funny. Sometimes I have patients come in, new patients in particular, and, the, and they will say something like, well, you know, if you can treat my elbow pain, then I've got a sister with infertility who will want to come and see you. I always find that to be a little bit curious. Like, first of all, what does your elbow pain have to do with your sister's infertility? But again, perhaps it's, it's simply this thing of we're not so familiar with acupuncture here in the West, and so we're hoping if it helps somebody we know that maybe it would help us. And again, I want to come back to this. Everybody's different, and you need to give things a fair trial. Uh, ideally, if you've got something that's bothering you, go find a qualified practitioner. Let them work on you for a couple of weeks, month or two, and see how things go. And finally, I want to remind you that when it comes to Chinese medicine, one size does not fit all. Your treatment is going to be individualized and tailored directly for you. That's why herbal formulas are often modified on a regular basis, and that's why acupuncture points are used differently from treatment to treatment. All right, one more common question here. Do you have to be Chinese to understand acupuncture? And the answer to that is a resounding no. Uh, no more than you would have to be a Western European to be able to understand Western medicine. What it does take, though, is some real concerted study and the ability to learn to wrap your mind around Chinese physiology, Chinese medical thought, and in some ways Chinese philosophy, because you're actually using a completely different perspective and frame of reference when you're looking at the body from a Chinese medicine perspective. Now, do you have to be Chinese to do that? Not necessarily. Do you have to read or speak Chinese to do that? No, you don't. Although I must say from my own experience, being able to read Chinese is really helpful because the vast treasury, the vast amount of the, the, the books on Chinese medicine, oddly enough, are still in Chinese. So as a practitioner, it can be helpful to have access to that rich treasury. But in terms of clinical practice, as long as a practitioner has studied long enough and hard enough and can apply the principles that are involved, then yes, you can be an absolutely competent practitioner of Chinese medicine, never having visited China, not being able to read a word of Chinese, and... In fact, you don't even have to like Chinese food for that matter. Again, anyone who is skilled in Chinese medicine has learned to view the body, has learned to view health, has learned to view treatment through this other perspective. Now, I am not here to say that one perspective is right and another perspective is wrong. I don't take that, that view at all. My sense of helping people with their health is that you need to get them the right medicine at the right time. And sometimes that's Western conventional medicine. Sometimes that could be acupuncture or Chinese herbs. And sometimes it's just sending them home and having them eat differently. There's a lot of different ways of getting better. And the important thing is to help a person get what they need when they need it. And if you've got some different perspectives to work with, then you've just got more tools in your toolbox to help people with. All right, let's move along to the next topic here. This is what the Chinese call yangsheng, or nourishing life. I think of it as practices 
for health, productivity, and happiness. All right, this is stuff that I found useful for a lot of my patients, and it's it's daily practices. It's things that you can do that help to keep you healthy. The Chinese have talked about Yangsheng nourishing life for a long time. I mean, they've got books that go back, you know, hundreds of years that talk about various practices that help to promote health and. You know, if you look around our world these days, we've got plenty of that here as well, right? Meditation, yoga, healthy food, exercise. You know, everywhere you look, there's emphasis on things that help you to live a better and a healthier life. I want to get into a couple here that I think are really useful. The first one is naps. Now, I know that some of you listening probably don't take naps, most likely have an inability to nap. Or just don't even think to take one. You know, your energy holds up or you simply can't relax and fall asleep in the middle of the day. And that's fine. Some people are like that. However, those of you that do take naps or those of you that would like to take naps, I'm talking to you. If you're the kind of person that finds that your energy is better, that you're more clear-headed, that you're more productive after taking a short 15 to 20-minute nap in the afternoon... I would really encourage you to do so. Yeah, those rocket scientists over at NASA, they've discovered that if astronauts up on the space station or, or out in orbit, you know, whatever missions they're on, if they'll take a, I think it's a 17-minute nap is what they came up with. You know, they're rocket scientists. They're very precise. But if they take a, a short nap after a meal, then the astronauts are something like 40% more productive for the next three and a half hours. And I've certainly found in my experience that a little nap after lunch means I've got plenty of mental clarity for the afternoon. Those of you that are nappers, you know what I'm talking about. And unfortunately, our particular society doesn't really value a little bit of downtime in the uh, beginning of the afternoon. You know, we, we look at that and we go, those people are lazy, right? Or those people are not motivated. But the truth is, there's often a little energy drop that a lot of us get after lunch. And if we can get that short 15 to 20 minutes of rest, then we are wildly productive throughout the rest of the day. I spent a little bit of time in Asia, and one of the things that I really loved about it is that naps were built into the lunch hour, right? Here in the States, generally speaking, we get 30 minutes for lunch. We're supposed to wolf it down, uh, ideally at our desk doing email or something like that, and then you know back to work for the rest of the afternoon. When I lived in Taiwan, their lunch hours, I mean, even if you go to City Hall, their lunch hours were an hour and a half. Because you're expected to eat a meal, your noon meal, at the pace of a human being eating a noon meal. In other words, you take your time and you enjoy it. And then you're supposed to take a little nap. You know, a little bit like when we were in kindergarten. Remember that? That we take a little nap after, after a snack? And, and then we just be able to go for the rest of the afternoon. It's, I think it's a really helpful practice. And again, if you're not the kind of person that can nap, then it's probably not as big a deal for you. But, you know, even actually, let me take that back. Even if you don't fall asleep, I think a little bit of time after a meal, just, just to close your eyes, rest. Give yourself a little rest. If you can get a nap, great. If you can't, even that little bit of rest can really help to restore things. It settles the nervous system. And so when you go back to work, 
throughout the rest of the afternoon, I think you'll find that you're more focused and even more so, uh, more productive. Anyway, consider naps. I think they're a great idea. Okay, next up on the Yangsheng roster here is food. And I think it's really simple. I rather cotton to Michael Pollan's idea about this. He says, eat food, not too much, mostly vegetables. I would simplify this to just eat food. All right, so I might be going a little bit off on an edge here. I've got some opinions. And the first one is this. Sugar is poison. It causes so much metabolic mischief, it's, it's ridiculous. I mean, you don't have to get too far away from looking at any source of news to know that obesity and, and even worse, levels of diabetes are just skyrocketing in our country. And a big piece of it is the metabolic mischief that comes from eating sugar. Again, I've got opinions about this. And so if you're offended by this, well, hey, it's my podcast show. When it comes to sugar, I think it's best just not to eat too much of it. You know, it's common. I mean, think about this. How many people do you know, or maybe you're one of these people, and you say, you know, you see a a thing of cookies go by, and you laugh, and you say, yeah, I'm a sugar junkie, ha, ha, ha. But, you know, when you stop, I mean, stop for a moment and think about that, okay? Nobody says, oh, I'm a heroin junkie, ha, 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 right? It's, it's not funny. It's actually a serious problem. Or to say, you know, I'm an, I'm an alcoholic. That's funny, ha, ha, ha. It's not funny. Sugar causes so many downstream health issues and will often just kind of blow it off as no big deal. I really think that if you've got any sort of metabolic issues, if you've got issues with your sleep, or you've got issues with energy going up or down, moodiness, uh, getting lightheaded after meals because all of a sudden the sugar in your system is gone and you've got nothing to run on, then it really makes sense to just cut the sugar out. Now, do you need to do this for your whole life? Well, actually you might. Um, But a, a good place to start with this is to simply do a little experiment. Go cold turkey on the sugar. Just drop it for a period of two to three weeks and see how you feel. You know, a lot of people, when they get away from the sugar, they find that when they put something that's normally sweet in their mouth, it doesn't taste so good anymore. And when you start eating a less sugary diet, when you start eating more vegetables, when you start eating more whole foods, I think you'll notice that your energy is much better. It's much more sustained. So again, when it comes to food, drop the sugar. Uh, And I would also encourage you to be really careful of any food that comes in a box because, you know, food that comes in a box isn't really food. Speaking of food, while I'm here on my soapbox, I'd like to remind you that episode 37 with Sandor Katz on fermented foods has got some great stuff in it. A lot of folks know about the importance of the bacteria in our gut and how it helps our immune systems, how it helps digestion. It does all kinds of amazing metabolic things for us. In fact, without the bacteria in our gut, there's all kinds of nutrition that we would not be able to get from our food. We live in this incredible symbiotic relationship with all these bacteria that live in our large intestine. 
And eating fermented foods is a great way to help nourish those bugs in our belly. First of all, you help to colonize with beneficial bacteria. And secondly, because you're eating more plant matter, this is the stuff that that the uh, gut flora flourishes on. And so things like kimchi or sauerkraut, yogurts especially, well, again, yogurt without the sugar. These are all wonderful for gut health, as well as, you know, the usual green leafy vegetables, that sort of thing. But fermented foods in general is something to consider. So if you like pickles, if you like sauerkraut, if you like your yogurts, be sure to tank up on them because they're really helpful for your, for your digestive system. One last thing about eating, and this, this is a, a big piece of the Chinese yangsheng. The Chinese consider it really important that when you eat, you eat. That you do it without distraction, that you do it slowly, you chew your food. Ideally, your emotions are in a settled and a happy place, right? Meals with friends always seem to be better, right? Even if you're busy at work, and you think that you need to wolf down a sandwich while you're doing your email, you might want to consider instead taking that 20 minutes, that 30 minutes, whatever you've got, eat slowly, look out the window, give yourself a little break from everything that you've been doing. It's good for the mind to have a break, and it's good for the belly, and it's good for the digestion to thoroughly chew your food. And and remember earlier we were talking about that there's sympathetic mode and parasympathetic mode. If, if you're in kind of a fight and flight state and you're wolfing down your food, you're not going to digest it as well. When we're stressed, the body's more interested in survival than it is digestion. And so whatever you can do to enjoy your food, to relax a bit, to let your body come into a more parasympathetic, relaxed state, the better you'll digest because you can only digest food when you're not in a sympathetic, stressed-out state. So eat slowly, eat with enjoyment. Okay, Yangsheng practice number three, meditation. Now, a lot of people think that meditation is inhabiting this quiet, floaty state where your mind is empty. And my experience is that this is not really what meditation is. A quiet, floaty mind is simply a quiet, floaty mind. Meditation is something different. Meditation is this practice that allows us to step away from the noise between our ears. A lot of my patients say that they've tried meditation and they can't do it because they can't get their mind to settle down. You know, the truth of the matter is, as human beings, we rarely have a mind that's settled. Meditation isn't necessarily for settling your mind. Meditation is more a practice for just letting go of the noise. It's a practice for sidestepping all those thoughts that tell us we got to do this or we got to do that. One of my teachers said that meditation wasn't that quiet, empty feeling. Meditation is the moment that you realize you've been wandering away in the world of thought and completely divorced from the present moment, and you come back. It's not about attaining something. It's about recognizing that you've drifted and coming back. 
Now, there's lots of different ways to meditate. In episode number 26, we talked with uh, a Zen monk, Genzan Quinell, a little bit about meditation. And at the bottom of that show notes page is a really nice introduction to breath meditation. I think breath meditation is really, really helpful stuff for a couple of reasons. Number one, with breath meditation, the only thing that you need to do to meditate is have your breath. And as long as you're here in this world, you always have that with you. That's the only thing that you need. Secondly, the thing about breath meditation is as you continue to practice it, and, and, when, I'm, and when I say practice, I don't mean that you're getting good at something. I mean that you practice and you start to notice how you feel and what's happening with your mind when you're not actually sitting in meditation, but noticing things in your real life. The thing that meditation helps to give us is not that we're quiet and not that we've got that peace that we're seeking, but that we can be okay with ourselves in the situation that we find ourselves in, regardless of what that situation is. Does peace sometimes show up with meditation? Absolutely it does. Does anxiety, frustration, and the whole plethora of human experience show up in meditation? Yes, it does. The thing about the practice of meditation is in time, you can come to realize that you've got thoughts, but you are not necessarily being run by those thoughts. You can have any kind of thought run through your head, but you don't necessarily have to let it move you into action, especially action that you don't want to do. For those of you that think, there's no way I can meditate, this is completely impossible, I've tried it, my mind won't shut up, let me be here to remind you that it's not about getting the mind to quiet down so much it is as learning to cultivate the ability to not be so reactive to the noise that's between your ears. One other thing I want to say about meditation. A lot of us have this quid pro quo stance with the world. We think that if we do X, we're going to get Y, or we're going to go do something. Let's take meditation in this case. I'm going to meditate and then I'll get peace. You know, or I'm going to meditate and then I'm going to get a better job. Or, you know, meditation is going to help me get something in my life that I want and I feel like I'm lacking. Uh, that's actually a really bad reason to meditate. Meditation, I think, is fabulous because it's one of the few things, it's one of the few moments that we can have in life where we are doing something simply for the sake of doing that thing. It's not that we're trying to get something. It's not that we're trying to get rid of something. We're just spending a little time watching our own minds and practicing letting go of our reactivity. I know there's all kinds of research out there these days that shows all the incredible benefits that meditation can bring. And it's good Western research, too. And that's not to be discounted. However, I think having a little bit of a practice, really 10 minutes a day, can be useful. Learning to simply sidestep the noise that we usually allow to run us can be helpful. And not just when you're sitting on your meditation cushion or in a chair or whatever you're doing, but in time, that kind of thing will start to show up in your regular everyday life. You may find yourself in a situation that you know pushes your buttons, and all of a sudden, you just notice the thoughts going through your head, and you just step right out of it. Meditation is helpful for that. 
If you live a life with anxiety, if you have frustration, if you feel like you can never turn your mind off and you're bothered all the time by racing thoughts, you might want to give it a try. Again, as with so many things, you can just do an experiment for yourself. Do it every day for a month, 10 minutes. Ideally, at the same time of day. It's more important to be consistent a few minutes a day than to just try to do a long meditation once a week. And really, it's a lovely practice for a few minutes every day to not have to be doing something. It's just delightful to be able to drop the, I'm going to do this to get that stance with the world. You can just sit down for 10 minutes, notice what's going on in your mind, and simply step away from it for a moment. Or not. Sometimes meditation is one anxiety-ridden ride. But the difference between being anxious and knowing that you're being anxious is the difference between thinking about a lovely meal and actually having a lovely meal. And if you'd like some more resources about meditation, check out our episode number two with Amy Darling. Bottom of the show notes page has a number of her written resources on meditation. She's been at this for a long time, and you might want to listen, or if you already listened to it, go re-listen to her podcast. She's got some great stuff to say about this practice. Finally, in our little section here on Yangsheng, I want to talk about gratitude. I think this is an incredibly underused and deeply powerful way of connecting with the goodness in our life that we often just don't notice, even though it's around us all the time. Gratitude, I think, is the antidote to the manufactured discontent that we're surrounded with. All you've got to do is open a magazine, turn on any television, drive down any street and look at a billboard, and we are constantly confronted with images, words, and ideas that we are not enough that we somehow need something else, that whatever we got, it's not good enough, or that there's something else out there that's going to be even better. Pausing to be appreciative of the incredible gifts and miracles that come into our life every day is a wonderful way to, well, in some ways a bit like meditation, it helps calm down some of the noise. It also helps to reduce anxiety, and more importantly, It helps to put us in touch with all the amazing stuff that actually is happening in our life. One of my patients recently was telling me about a practice that she does called 1000 Gifts. And it's it's kind of a uh, gratitude journal. And I love the name of this, 1000 Gifts. And what it is, is you write down 1000 gifts that life gives to you. You know, think about this for a moment. You know, when you think about getting a gift. When you think about a gift, what's the first thing you do? You receive it. The first thing you do with a gift is you actually, you actually take it. You take it in, right? You allow it. And the second thing that you do with a gift is you open it up. And so I found that this idea of a gratitude journal where you first receive, I really feel, I mean, notice in your heart space, notice that space in your chest where you feel like, wow, thank you. You know, wow, this is amazing. Or, wow, this is difficult, and yet here it is, and so it's part of my life, and I'm grateful. Take those moments that you feel 
You won't notice them so much with your head, but you'll certainly notice them with your heart. Take those moments, write them down, and then unpack them a bit. How is it that this is a benefit in your life? How is it that you've come to a sense of gratitude for it? How is it that whatever this is that just lit up your heart actually helps you in your life or helps others in your life as well? It doesn't take long. You know, you could receive a little feeling from the universe, write it down. It might take you five minutes and uh, write down a thousand of them and see what you come up with. I think it's a great practice. And again, I keep coming back to this thing about our nervous system, that we can be in this state of calm or we can be in this state of being wound up. And there's something about spending time and feeling gratitude thinking about our gratitude, expressing it, that seems to be deeply calming to the nervous system. And that can only help with translating into greater health and greater well-being. All right, let's move along to our last topic here, which is what it takes to become an acupuncturist, or what should you think about if you're thinking of becoming an acupuncturist? I've had a couple of people over the year ask me about this, and so I thought this would be a good place to address it. Now, when it comes to being an acupuncturist, there's a couple things to think about. First of all, when you hear the word acupuncturist, it could mean several different things. There are those of us like myself who are licensed acupuncturists or LACs. Other states may have different names for them. Folks like us went to school for three to four years full-time, uh, at least a 3,000-hour program, uh, over 1,000 hours of uh, supervised clinical experience, and those folks generally have a master's degree. Now, sometimes you'll see places that advertise having an acupuncturist, and it's actually a chiropractor who, because of the state laws in various states, they can study a little acupuncture. Here in uh, the state of Missouri, they need about 100 hours, and then they pass a uh, chiropractic acupuncture test, and they can uh, practice as acupuncturists. So they've got slightly different kind of learning than uh, a licensed acupuncturist. And lately, you may have heard about physical therapists practicing something called dry needling, which if you take a look at the needles they're using and the points that they're using, it's basically acupuncture. Those guys learn their stuff in a couple of weekend seminars um, and without any supervised clinical experience. So what I'm going to talk about here today is stuff to think about if you're thinking of becoming a licensed acupuncturist. What that's going to require is going to school for three to four years. A couple things that you want to consider if you're thinking about becoming an acupuncturist, all right? Just to help give you a lay of the land. First of all, there are no jobs out there or very, very few jobs out there for acupuncturists. And so if you're thinking about getting involved in this field, know this. You're going to have to be a self-starter. You're going to ha either have to already have some business acumen or you're going to have to learn to acquire it. So it's not just a matter of, oh, I'm going to be a healer and people will beat a path to my door. You're also going to be a business person. And you're also going to be your own boss. And so if you're not good at motivating yourself, it's probably not a good career for you. But by the same token, if you're fine with motivating yourself, and actually if you like self-employment, and if you like autonomy, then it can be a really great career. 
Uh, know this, though, this is not a nine-to-five job. This is not the kind of thing where you go to it, you do your time, and you come back out at the end of the day and you're done. Often, when you're running your own business, and especially in the early years when you're running your own practice, you got to have yourself some hustle. Other thing to consider if you're thinking of being an acupuncturist is you have to be comfortable working in the modern American healthcare field. And in the modern American healthcare field, it means that you're probably number three or four on someone's list for help. Generally speaking, people will first try conventional medicine. Oftentimes, they'll try something else, uh, physical therapy, chiropractics, massage, uh, who knows what. And then eventually they'll, they'll maybe come to an acupuncturist. But, you know, we're the people with the needles. And so unless someone is familiar with Chinese medicine, they've used it for a while, you're probably a little ways down on the list. So if that sounds discouraging to you, keep that in mind if you're thinking about doing this as a profession. What, what do you need to be an acupuncturist? What are some of the personality traits or, or just outlooks on life? Number one, and, and I think this goes without saying, you have to have an interest in people and you have to have a deep sense of curiosity. It helps to be as interested in or even more interested in the questions that show up as the answers. And this makes it an interesting practice, really, because people come to us looking for answers. And, of course, we want to help people and we want to find the most efficient and the best method to help them. But a lot of times that means having to explore the unknown. And let's face it, if someone has walked into your acupuncture office, they're probably there because a number of other treatments haven't helped or, or maybe they've even hurt made the condition worse, or just haven't been satisfying. So it helps to have some comfort or even a cultivated ability to sit and be comfortable with not knowing and to be able to be okay with uncertainty, right? If you are okay with constantly being on the edge of what you know, and if you like being consistently pushed to know more, then the field of acupuncture could be really great for you. However, by the same token, if, if you're the kind of person that wants to know what to do and just get it done, acupuncture might be a little frustrating. People generally come in with issues that are curious and tricky to resolve. And actually, that can be a lot of fun for some of us. But if you don't like being put on the spot for knowing something, it may not be the best career for you. You got to be on, you got to be comfortable with your not knowing, and you've got to be comfortable with being able to attentively follow a process through and see what's helpful and see what's not. Again, I want to emphasize, if you're planning to become an acupuncturist, you're most likely also going to become a small business person. If that doesn't sound interesting to you, or if that's something that you would like to avoid, or if you don't think you want to learn that skill set, then being an acupuncturist probably isn't going to be a good way to go with your career. Because in addition to being a healer, in addition to helping people with the various issues that they come in with, you also have to have an eye toward running a business, knowing something about cash flow, being able to market yourself, and have fun with it, right? 
Some people like that. You know, some, I feel lucky. I grew up in a family of small business people. So most of my family never had jobs. They just had businesses. And so for me, in some ways, it's kind of second nature. And, and I've got plenty of colleagues. They've really had to learn their business acumen. That doesn't mean that, that you can't also be a good healer. And it doesn't, it doesn't take away from being a healer necessarily. It's just that you're going to have to wear several different hats if you want to practice this craft. Finally, if you really think you want to do this, and especially if it's a career change for you or you know, a big life transition of some sort, I highly encourage you to get on the internet and dig up some acupuncturists in your area and go informationally interview them. And I would encourage you to talk both to seasoned practitioners as well as new practitioners. Talk to people that have learned acupuncture at different schools so that you can get an idea not only of what the schooling was like, but also of the particular type of acupuncture that they were trained in and that they practice. I encourage you to be really nosy with these people. Ask them how much money they make. Ask them what kind of car they drive. Ask them how long it took for them to pay back loans if they took loans. Ask them what they love about their work, and also be sure to ask them what frustrates them about the work that they do. And keep in mind that what some people see as negatives about the job, others will see it as positive or as neutral. And so take it all as feedback, run it through your own filters, run it through your own mind, run it through your own heart. Also be sure to interview if you're able to, if you live in a city that has multiple acupuncture schools, that would be great. Or if you're considering traveling or moving to another town to do this study, I encourage you to check out a couple of different schools. Again, informationally interview there, talk to the students, talk to the alum, talk to the teachers, talk to the administrative staff, and get a feel for which place resonates with you. You'll know, right? Your, your head has certain things that it's looking for, and your heart has other things that it's looking for. And when those things land, you'll just know it. All right, that's it for this anniversary episode of Everyday Acupuncture. Again, I want to give a big thank you to all of the guests that I've had on over the past year. It's been wonderful to talk with all of you. It's so great to be able to take your seasoned points of view and your seasoned experience and be able to share it with the listeners here. And, and thank you, too, to the listeners for uh, enjoying the show. Here in the new year, you also have the ability to support Everyday Acupuncture. It takes a little bit of cashola to keep the servers going, and, and there's always tea that has to be put in the teacup. That keeps the inspiration rolling for the show. You go to the website for the show. That is everydayacupuncturepodcast.com. There's actually a space where you could go donate a few shekels to the effort here. So if you like the show, go ahead and, and leave a little donation. Also, we always appreciate a review on iTunes. It helps people to find the show when you rate it and review it. And if you like the show, it'll help others to find it by going over to iTunes and doing that review. So thanks for that. Thanks for listening. And as always, if you have comments, please write. If you have suggestions for the show, topics you'd love to hear about, please send them along. Thanks for listening and see you next time. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Everyday Acupuncture. If so, 
please take a moment to head over to www.everydayacupuncturepodcast.com and click on the review on iTunes button to rate and review the show. You can also express your appreciation by supporting the show with a donation. Thanks for listening and be sure to tune in again next week. 